Hello, I'm Kate Fisher. Welcome to Milkshakes for Marley, the podcast that tells the survival stories of blood product recipients to thank donors and to encourage people to donate blood, plasma, platelets or breast milk. If you have ever been a donor, you could have been the one to save the life of the guests that we profile here each week on the Milkshakes for Marley podcast. And becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. Today we interview Alana, who was nominated by one of our listeners. She and her son TJ were involved in a horrific road crash between Canberra and the south coast in New South Wales that left TJ with life-threatening injuries and the need for blood products. Alana is an advocate for road safety and also encourages people to donate blood. We welcome her and her family to the Milkshakes for Mali community. So hi Alana, thank you for joining us today um, and welcome to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. Thank you and thank you so much for having me and, and showing any interest in our story. I'm, I'm really grateful. Thank you. Now, you were nominated by one of our listeners from Canberra who had seen local coverage of your son's injuries following a road crash um, and your ongoing advocacy in road safety and blood donation. Um, So we are so grateful to have you here on the show today sharing your story with us. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what life was like for TJ in the weeks leading up to his accident? Sure. So TJ had just finished year seven. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was our crash happened on the 19th of December. So he had had all of December virtually off school. He was enjoying life. Two days before the crash, we took him to Questacon. Uh, We took him to the markets and he had a photo with Santa, all those sorts of things. Um, He was, he, TJ is a really happy, um, energetic, full of beans child he's played foot bit foot you know rugby league and rugby union since as long as I can remember uh he plays it in and out I'm just sitting here in the kitchen right now and there's this long sort of corridor of space and when he was little he used to run up and down that being the pretend field with his football and he'd do yeah. the sounds of the crowd cheering when he'd scored a try and you know he'd keep notebooks of predictions on who was going to win each game who was going to win the season what players were worth he'd calculate how valuable teams were based on the player ranking that he would give out so I've kept all of those books yeah um so yeah he was he was really into his footy both codes union and league and was also a big fan of the NFL which gave him something to focus on um during our summer period when we didn't have any uh footy going on mm-hmm. sorry if you can hear my dogs in the back totally fine <laughs> the dogs are part of the family as well what kind of dog yes. do you <laughs> uh, we have a little Alfie uh he's he's a cavoodle so yeah. he uh, went through all of this with Tej as well yeah. and then we have a spoodle Archie who was born on the day Tej was discharged from hospital the first oh. time and yeah so they're very close Um, And, yeah, they've been through this whole journey with him. And as a result, they're quite protective of their big brother. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, And you will know that Marley has got a service dog. So she's got her seizure response service dog who is everywhere with you all all the time. So dogs are very much part of our family as well and always have been. Um, I was just reflecting on what you were saying about um, 
the football connection from the time that TJ was such a little kid. And we lived in Canberra for 16 years before relocating to Queensland um, 18 months ago. And it's hard to explain to people that haven't lived in Canberra that the Brumbies and or the Raiders, depending on which side of the fence you sit on, it's like a religion in Canberra and people mm. grow up with it. It's very much part of that culture and that upbringing. And it, yeah, they really, really, really love their footy in Canberra. You see, yeah, you know, I've absolutely. sat through plenty of Raiders games when it has been sleeting and snowing and nobody moves, nobody leaves. People just really, really, really love it. So I can understand yeah. that passion was really in his blood. Um, now, I know that it must be extraordinarily traumatic for you to relive the day of the accident. And I don't know how much you even remember about what happened. Um, and just to remind you that the focus of this podcast isn't the trauma that you endured. Tell your story as authentically as you want to, but don't feel like you really have to delve into that if that's not something that feels right for you. Um, we really focus on what happens in people's lives after they've received that blood product. Um, but as much as you feel comfortable, can you just give me an overview of what happened when that road crash occurred? Sure. So we were driving down to the South Coast just for a couple of days with the intention of coming back home before Christmas. Mm -hmm. uh, we at that time were the host family to an American couple who were out from Philadelphia. Um, the part, uh, the husband Frank was playing baseball with the Canberra Cavalry and his part, wife Christina uh, was with us. So he got picked in the world team. Uh, which I think was scheduled to play around the 20th of 20 or 23rd of December. So we thought we'll use the opportunity to take Christina down to the South Coast, stop in Braidwood, Bungendore, do all that stuff. So that's why she was with us. Um, so I was driving, Christina was in the front passenger side and Teej was behind her and we'd stopped at uh, Bungendore and done all the touristy things there with the view to stop at Braidwood. And just as we hit the road after Bungendore, we noticed this woman and she was driving right up my ass mm. and like she was quite aggressive. So I slowed down on purpose to allow her to get in front of us. And then uh, she did. And when she overtook me, she just stayed in the wrong lane for an excessive period of time. Like there was more, more than enough time and space for her to come back into the appropriate lane, but she just kept driving on the wrong side of the road and then she was veering off onto the elbow so she was driving on the dirt and we could see child seats in the back of her car and then she we, she started waving her arms around and we thought maybe she had kids in the car and she was being distracted by the kids but um, it just kept going and, and we just felt unsafe so we slowed down again and then eventually another car overtook us and we just kept slowing down because she, she just made us feel unsafe. Mm -hmm. And then um, just out of the blue, she veered onto the wrong side of the road again, but this time she clipped the back of an oncoming SUV and that SUV ended up um, driving in front of me. So I've sort of T-boned it and um, so there were two people in that car. And both of us were driving at 100 k's, so you can imagine the impact. Any road crash that's 60 k's and over is considered uh, high speed, and we were both doing 100. Um, at the time, once you saw, you know, I remember I only remember a silver flash. The SUV was silver, 
and just this really loud bang. And then and then it was all over. My airbag had deflated by then. And I just remember thinking, oh, that's okay. It's just a little bingle. Um, I'll just start the car again and we'll be fine mm-hmm. and keep going. And then it's sort of I could hear Christina saying, my legs detached, my legs detached, and Tej was just groaning. And I sort of looked at Christina and her right femur, so the one closest to me, was obviously broken and that was giving her the sensation of her leg being detached and um and then I sort of turned and looked at Tej and he was white there was no color in him he was sort of slumped over sort of slumped into the middle of the car seat and he was wet from sweat and then all of a sudden I had people um at the windscreen I, I felt okay, like I, I, my adrenaline was pumping and I immediately rang triple zero. Um, fortunately, it was, the, it was the first thing I did was just pick up the phone and ring triple zero and I just remember saying to the guy, they, they asked, do you need ambulance, police or fire? And I said, we need everybody. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I am. Um, so a hot tip there, download apps to give you GPS location. Um, I didn't, I just said, I've, I've left Bungendore. I'm heading to Braidwood. I didn't even know the name of the highway at that time. And yeah. it's the King's Highway. I've traveled it a million times and I didn't even know what it was called. Yeah. Um, and, and then I couldn't breathe because my seatbelt had kicked in and I couldn't move and it doesn't unlock after a car crash. It stays locked. Fortunately, one of the people um, who had pulled over had a knife and he was able to cut the seatbelt loose from all of us. Um, And then we had a student nurse pulled over and all I could say was just please stay with my son because I can't get to him. And he couldn't talk. All he could do was really say his name Um, and that took a lot of energy. Um, Eventually the... Uh, fire team I think showed up first and then the paramedics but obviously the fire team couldn't do much until the paramedics had come to make their assessment we all got numbers tags attached to us of our priority Uh, and then um, then once the paramedics had made their assessments the fire team um, cut my door off and had to move my chair because it had come forward and get me out um, and then once I was out, they got Christina out. Uh, sorry, then they had to cut the entire passenger side off. So, like, the whole side of the car had to be removed um, because they didn't know the extent um, of Christina and Tej's injuries, whether there was, you know, spinal injuries and um, brain damage and things like that. So they cut that off uh, and then... Um, Tej was airlifted so I remember the paramedic who was with me um, said we're going to put these um, um, I can't remember the the earmuff things on your head and I just want you to close your eyes because the helicopter's landing and so the helicopter landed and it felt like two seconds later um, a surgeon um, Dr Falconer came over to me now and said we're taking him and 
we're taking him to Canberra Hospital now. And that's all I remember. And then my husband showed up. I'd rung him and he drove out from Canberra. And I said, you, someone has to go with Tej. You have to go with him. But no one was allowed to go with him because they needed to go immediately. So um, they went in the helicopter. Um, and then Christina and I and the other two in the other car went back via um, ambulance back to the Canberra Hospital. Tej went in for emergency surgery um, and he had a perforated bowel. So what that means is the seatbelt tore through his abdominal muscle and then tore through his, so the lap sash. Yes, it's what the seatbelt saved his life. Absolutely. We'd all be dead without seatbelts, but um, it's also what caused all the damage. So that lap sash tore through his abdominal muscle and tore through his bowel and it released all of his fecal matter into his body. Um, and so as a result of that, um, once that happened, he, they had to operate. He went in for emergency surgery and they removed about 15 to 17 centimetres of his large intestines. So sort of the part, it's called the cecum and it's the part where your appendix is attached. Mm -hmm. So there's no appendix, um, there's no cecum and that portion of his bowel has been removed. But his bowel had to have um, an opportunity to heal. Mm -hmm. And so what they did was create a double-sided stoma. So um, he had his the end of his small intestines and the beginning of his large intestines just poking out of his body um, for a period of five months. So he had a colostomy bag. And that in itself was a massive um, issue, which I, I'll come back to um and then he went um then he went into ICU I think he had about two or three nights two nights in ICU and then they determined you know he should be good to go down to pediatric high dependency which is where he went uh, he then went in to have another procedure to have a TPN inserted mm -hmm. uh, and then um that night at about 9, 9.30 that night, he just started um, choking and having these weird choking sounds. Uh, and what had happened is he'd had some fractured ribs as a result and they'd punctured his lung. So his lungs had started to fill with, fill with fluid. So, yeah, that choking, drowning sound was what was happening. So we went in for surgery number three. So this is um, a second emergency surgery. Um, to put a drain into his lungs and he went back up to ICU. So at this stage, he had a drain into his abdomen to try and um, remove all the fluid and things that were in there and a drain into his lung, his right lung to remove all the fluid from there. So he was in ICU for about another eight days, which included Christmas. Uh, a child uh, in Canberra Hospital, unfortunately, um, and I know this is something that you've experienced too, Canberra Hospital isn't set up for um, children who aren't babies who need intensive care. So um, he was in ICU with adults and the first time, that first two nights, the bed, I'm not sure, I'm assuming most listeners aren't familiar with an ICU set up, but a Canberra Hospital, it's a pod, they're pods, and in the pod it's four beds, and 
you are next to one bed, one bed's across from you and the other one is sort of diagonally across from you. So it's just like a square. And um, Tej was across and they like to keep the curtains open because the nurses collaborate and they cover for each other's breaks. So you can yeah. see the other patients and you know what's going on. When Tej was first in ICU, the person across from him was a prisoner um, from the jail, which means he came with prison guards and police and handcuffs. And so that's what my 13-year-old boy was looking at. And then they moved him, the prisoner. Obviously, it wasn't appropriate for Thomas to be looking at that. And then um, the second time he went up into ICU, he was there for a bit longer and he had two roommates who were there. They were there before Tej came in and they were still there when Tej left. And that other bed was a rotating bed of death. And I remember having to close the curtain so many times when that guy, where two different people were having their last rites read to them and watching those families grieve. And I knew that Tej didn't need to see that. So we had to close those curtains. Um, I know once um, it was Christmas day, Christmas night, um, it was the middle of the night and Tej was fighting massive infections because of what had happened. And so you were constantly having to take blood and urine. Yeah. And they'd taken his catheter out, I think on Christmas day, um, and he was going in a bottle, which was problematic. And then we needed a urine sample and midstream which is like virtually impossible to get from a 13-year-old who can yep. hardly move. Yeah. So um, it was in the middle of the night and I said, okay, what we're going to do, Tej, is I'll just get you to pee into the bottle and then I'll just take you out, put you in the jar, and then I'll put you back in the bottle because I didn't know how else to get something midstream. Yeah. That's what I did and he ended up peeing all over the bed. Mm. Um, and what had happened is about an hour before that, the nurses and the wardsman had changed his linen. So he wasn't capable of moving and he had to be lifted in and out of the bed. And they changed his linen and then I did this. So Thomas got the shits because it was the middle of the night. I just made him wet the bed and everyone was going to have to come and clean his room, his mm. linen and stuff again. And even though nobody cared, it was just something it's I'll never forget. a 13-year-old boy's worst nightmare. <laughs> Yeah, and I and I just was I was so angry at myself for putting him through that, and the wardsman that night, he was so good. Yeah. Um, Ricky Stewart, who's the Raiders coach, had come to visit Thomas that morning, and it was a big deal in the ICU ward. And so the wardsman, who was there that morning, and he was back again that night. I swear to God, they worked twenty four hours a day. <laughs> um was just there trying to make light of the situation and, and put a smile on Thomas's face and was just talking, you know, oh, isn't that cool that Ricky came to visit you and was just talking to Thomas and I'll never, ever forget that wardsman forever, just what he did that time at that time. And um, anyway, Tej eventually went back down to paediatric high dependency and then eventually into adolescence. Um, the hospital was really quiet over that time because there's no elective surgeries going on, of course. Um, so he and Thomas is just such a kind person. And I decided I consciously made the decision to engage the media because I knew that we would have a big legal battle coming up. And I knew 
that Tej needed the support yeah. of the community. Um, and so I made the decision to engage media. So there was a lot of media coverage. There was a lot of support, a lot of support from the community, particularly the rugby league and rugby union communities. Um, a lot of visitors, you know, current and former players from both the clubs, you know, reached out, gave him a lot of merchandise and stuff like that, came and visited him and spent time with him. So many people because he couldn't do stuff and he couldn't, um, you know, getting him into get in into a, like a wheelchair to just move around was such a monumental effort because he was connected to so many machines and painkillers and feeding tubes and just it was just really really difficult. And so he had a physio that worked with him every day. And I don't know how he did this, but from day one he started doing things just like blowing bubbles in a cup just to keep his lungs active. Yeah. Um, and he screamed in pain whenever he was doing his physio, but he did it yeah. sometimes twice a day. And his physio, Taylor, was amazing. She, you know, when he was really angry and he'd see her walk in the room and he'd be like, I don't want to see you right now. I want you to go away. You know, she she took that on the chin. She knew it wasn't her. She knew it was the pain that he was going to encounter. Absolutely. Um, so they were just the hospital staff. I can't commend enough what they did for him. Um, I remember one of his surgeons was talking to me at about 11 o'clock at night in his room. And then in the morning, that same surgeon was waking me up at 6.30 in the morning. And I just, you know, I, I don't know when they sleep. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful, um, isn't it? Yeah. They're there. So when people bitch about our health system, please don't because it's a lot worse in other countries and just remember that that surgeon was there at 11 30 at night and then again you know the next morning but um yeah so that's what happened and then he had to go uh, for five months with um a double-sighted stoma so stomas are pretty common and people with bowel cancer and other you know problems and have stomas all the time uh, they sometimes have two stomas, which might be one on either side of their abdomen, but very few have a double-sided stoma. Right. Uh, and the problem with that is because very, very few people have that, it means the products on the market to manage a double-sided sighted stoma are virtually non-existent. Okay. So we had the biggest colostomy bag that we could um, to go over the double-sided stoma but one thing that was battling Thomas is that um, he had to have when they when he went in for emergency surgery on the time that it happened they had to cut his abdomen open so he's got about a 15 17 centimeter scar that starts at his belly button and goes all the way around like right round to his side Right. And because he was swollen and he'd undergone trauma and all that sort of stuff, it's not a pretty looking scar. It's very yeah. crooked. Um, it's very thick. And um, so when you try and put a stoma bag over the top of it, yeah, right. it sits on top of the scar tissue and that scar tissue ends up acting like a river. So it was constantly leaking. And so fecal matter would be running out. And when you ideally a, a Stoma bag could last up to a week on someone who didn't have that sort of scar tissue. But for Tej, we were lucky if we got 24 hours out of it. Oh, it didn't matter 
yeah, the SEALs, and we worked with the Stoma Association, we worked with the federal government to try and, and all the different producers of, of these products to try and come up with ways that we could seal it. And we were using multiple different seals mm-hmm. and it made no difference. Leakages were happening. He rolled over once in the middle of the night and it just burst like it pops like a balloon. Um, so those are the things he sort of had to encounter as a 13-year-old going back into year eight. Um, so he eventually had stoma reversal surgery in May 2018. So that's about five months post-crash. He went in. So this is surgery number four. Uh, and this is um, they reconnected his two stomas and just popped them back in and, and off he went. So he was in surgery for about another two weeks then. And then in October uh, 2018, he woke up one morning in like really high level pain. He felt really sick. He couldn't keep anything down. He was vomiting. And by now he'd developed a pretty strong, pretty high pain threshold. And for him to be saying he was in excruciating pain and requesting morphine was a really big issue. Mm. So we went into the hospital and after some more CT scans and things, they determined that he had another blockage. So what happens with when that fecal matter was first released into his body, it causes these things called adhesions, which are like scars inside your body and they're sticky and they grow. Um, and really the only way to keep them at bay is to constantly move and stuff, you know, be, be active. But Teach found that really difficult in that first year because he was in so much pain. Yeah. So what had happened is two of those adhesions had wrapped themselves around his stomach. And if you imagine like a tree root wrapping itself around a sewage pipe, that's kind of what's happened. Mm-hmm. So that's why he was vomiting because nothing was being digested because it couldn't get through. So they tried to um, allow it time to clean, to clear itself, and he was hooked up to um, a nasal gastric. So about 60 centimetres of tubing went up his nose and down into his tummy. And by this stage, he's doing that awake. He's not put under or yep. any pain relief. And they're that. brutal. They're not fun. They are. No. So everyone's probably experienced a COVID um, test now, the nasal ones, and Thomas included. And he's had multiple of those nasal tubes put up him. And his his firm belief is that the COVID tests are tiny in comparison to the feeling of those tubes going up your nose. So he had that up there and it was working over time and it was pulling so much out of him, but it just couldn't clear the blockage. So on day four, he went in for emergency surgery to have those removed. So he now has another scar up the middle of him because these adhesions were quite high they were up near his stomach um and I remember um by the time surgery had happened he hadn't eaten so he had surgery on the Monday and he hadn't had anything to eat or drink since the Thursday so by this stage even though he was connected to fluids he was super dehydrated yeah and um on the night before his surgery he was booked in for the first thing Monday morning The night before his surgery, they were doing blood tests, which they do before surgery to confirm what blood type you are in case you need a donation. Even though they've done it before, they do it again. And the nurses couldn't get any blood out of him. The doctors couldn't get any blood out of him. In the end, they had to bring down a NICU nurse 
mm-hmm. who, uh, sorry, a NICU doctor who was really well experienced with tiny little veins from tiny yeah. little babies to get some blood out of him because he was just so unwell. And it took hours, that process, um, for that blood test. Um, and, but that's his last surgery. Um, and that was October 2018. Um, he has put in hours upon hours upon hours of rehab. He started with hydrotherapy and then it moved to land-based um, f- physiology. So he has an exercise physiologist. He has a team of three physiotherapists, two that work with his body more wholly and then one that works specifically with his tummy and mm-hmm. his te- intestines. Um, he has then, he had a PT who would complement the work that was done by them. So when they wanted to just do really basic exercises, he would do that and help build his fitness. Uh, and then obviously he has psychologists as well and a pediatrician and then all of his surgeons and nurses and his GP. Um, who kind of keeps an overview of everything. I don't know how he does it, but he does. Mm. Uh, and so 2018, that was um, Teacher's year eight. So he barely went to school. He went for the purposes of socialisation and stuff like that. Uh, then year nine was 2019. Uh, he went part-time and he had um, he tried to play rugby league. He was so unfit. He took, it's taken him almost four years to to regain his fitness. Then year 10 was the year 2020 and that's when we had COVID. Yeah. And I remember him coming home saying, I can't do another year at home. You know, this this is going to kill me if I have to do another year at home. So he started playing rugby league and union, but it was interrupted by COVID. Schooling Mm -hmm. was interrupted by COVID. Then we had 2021, which was his year 11. And again, we were interrupted by another lockdown. Um, Fortunately, though, um, well, both his rugby league and rugby union was interrupted again. Um, He didn't play rugby league, but he played union, but the season didn't finish because of the the last Mm -hmm. lockdown we had in August. Uh, And so this year he started year 12. Fingers crossed he can finish the year going to school. Um, And his goal is to play rugby union for the school again. But, um, you know, it's great that he gets out on the field. But I think one of the biggest things is a lot of people forget the hours and hours of work that goes into rehabbing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We get that. Yeah. Just because he's not in hospital anymore doesn't mean that he's well. You know, he's got so much trauma. so much psychological trauma, physical trauma. Um, And one analogy I try to explain to people is if you have a teacup and you break that teacup, you can glue it back together, but it's not perfect. Mm. It will never work the way that it did before it was broken. Mm -hmm. My son had his middles sliced through. He will never work the same. He has no abdominal muscle that that abdominal abdominal muscle is gone and muscle does not grow back. So he's missing a core, you know, a key function of his core. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know, and as the doctors have told us, one of the only reasons he survived was because he was so fit before going into the crash. And many other children in his position wouldn't have survived. He had a really strong core because 
he played footy. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that's it. And that's that's what what helped him. And then obviously his seatbelt was was the big factor. Um, but without his core and without his seatbelt, yes, he would be dead. Um, he was resuscitated during that first surgery. Uh, he received donated blood products. Um, and um, since then, we've start, started donating um, blood products, but it can be really hard for me. Yeah. Um, you know, if I'm not travelling so well, then I can't donate because going into that space can be really triggering. Yeah. Another big trigger for me is police because yeah. I remember sitting in the car at the time it happened and I knew who caused the crash and a policeman was, he was, picking up something outside my window and I called out to him and he came over and I remember saying to him you need to arrest that woman you need to arrest that woman she caused it she caused it and he said to me it's okay you don't need to worry about that right now I will worry about that later and so for me police are a trigger Mm -hmm. and I remember walking into the blood donor in Garen and I walked in and I think it was one of the police days where they were all going in to donate. Oh, so there was about yeah, five or six that. of them. Yeah, was yeah. sitting in the waiting room and I freaked out. Yeah. So I was still, when I've made the decision to go, I will go and I will follow through. And for me, um, I have low iron, so I have to take iron supplements um, to get me over the line. And then I have terrible, terrible blood flow. And it, I can only donate plasma out of one arm. I can donate blood out of either, yeah. but I have to have my arms and my shoulders and my whole body warmed up before they can packs. Take, yeah. Yeah, get in there. Yeah. And then once they get in there, I've got to keep, I basically just run on the spot while I'm sitting in the chair to keep my mm-hmm. blood flow going. I can't be still because then yeah. it, the machine just stops. So, and then <laughs> I know once I went Hi, in there Archie. and um <laughs> He's um he's got a bit of trauma from Thomas, but um <laughs> that's okay. I've noticed yes. when the pitch in your voice is changing when you're talking about something, I've been able to hear the dogs in the background. They're totally reacting yeah. to you. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. People don't give yeah. dogs enough credit for this. Um, just to comment on how difficult it is for you to give blood at times. What makes me so angry about that is that there is 13 million people in Australia that are eligible to give blood and less than 500,000 people do give blood. And if we had more people going and giving it blood that were eligible to do it, then maybe you wouldn't have to put yourself through that all the time. You know, I hear the story, similar to your story, stories like this all the time of people that have been through such traumatic things and pushed through PTSD to get into blood donor centres or, you know, taking iron supplements so that they've got enough iron to be able to donate because there's critical blood shortages all the time. And you know, the people that donate have to keep going back in there. And yet there's the other, you know, 12 and a half million people that don't donate and either mm. them or someone that they love is going to need blood products, you know, yeah. in their lifetime. Yeah. So it just blows my mind. So that's part of the reason that we've made this podcast is to tell these stories so that people understand the broad range of people that need blood products. Um, yeah. Also going back to how unwell TJ was, you had been through a massive car accident as well. Mm. As a mum, <laughs> I know the answer to the question, but how do you pick yourself up and become TJ's carer after being through something so traumatic yourself? Um, you just got to do it. 
Mm. The, you know, I remember arguing with the insurance company saying, I, I need help. I can't do this by myself. Um, I need, you know, I, when we were initially, obviously, when we first came home, it was all me and, and Tej wouldn't let it be any other way. Yep. Anyway, and, and I was having to take sick leave. Um, I was, you know, anxious. How much sick leave do I have left? Or, mm-hmm. you know, all that sort of stuff. And my doctor was able, you know, I was able to get my own sick leave for my own recovery period. Yep. But the insurance didn't cover sick leave for me in a carer's role. And I said, well, I don't, you know, I'm not asking you to pay me at my current salary, pay me at minimum wage. Yeah. Happy to be paid at minimum wage. Just give me something that, you know, so I can take more time. Instead of paying me at minimum wage, they said, we can hire an unqualified carer to come and care for your son in your home. But I'm like, he's 13, his bowels are hanging out of his body. Why on earth would I want some random and, and not having, you know, I, I do not mean this in a derogatory tone at all, but for many of the people working in that job, English is a second language. Yep. Yep. Communication yep. would be an issue for a 13-year-old boy yep. who's experienced trauma. Mm. And for me, in the end, my boss gave me some of her sick leave so that I would be able to have more time at home. That's what happened. Oh, and I relied exactly. heavily. Sorry. That's exceptional that someone would do yeah. that for you. I know. And she that's one of the other me. messages that we try to get through in the podcast as well is that people talk about special needs children and it's rare that people look at illness, disability, injury as families with additional needs. And that's what it really mm-hmm. is because this has had an impact not just on TJ and everything that's going to happen with his life, but it's had an impact on your whole family, you know, socially, financially, economically the career opportunities that you've probably missed out on you know as a result of all of this the impact on your mental health and so much it's not it hasn't just been about just his injuries and his accident and him needing that additional care it has that impact not just on your immediate family but all the people that love you in your community as well it's so far reaching and yeah the person that caused your accident like the wave that goes from that moment in time it's just so hard to measure that level of trauma. Yeah, yeah. it affects everyone. You know, my dad, um, he is, he'll be 72 this year. So he was 68 when it happened. And dad's always been the really strong one of the family, the one able to cope and rally the troops sort of thing. He was, he couldn't do anything. He was just, yeah, so distressed. Um, we had to, my brother, he came into hospital um, and he had to sort of take charge, which yeah. was well out of his comfort zone. My husband just spent his time running between, you know, Tej and me because I'd been admitted as well. Yeah. Um, it's aged my dad. My dad has heart problems now. And while no one, no medical professional will ever say the two are linked, of yeah. course they're linked. Extreme stress um, is not good for your health outcomes. Yeah, yeah. So much of the things that my parents wanted to do in their retirement has been taken off them now because I've needed them to be here to support us and help get Tej to medical appointments because he was doing, at the peak, he was doing eight to ten medical appointments a week and I can't 
do all of that myself. Mm. I can't, my brain can't, not alone. Just the mental load. Yeah. 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 And I relied on my dad to take on some of that and to, I mean, he even still now makes appointments. Be like, dad, I know, you know, I'll think of it in the middle of the night. Oh, we've got to go and see this person. So I'll text him. And then in the morning he gets up and he makes the appointment. And then that's amazing. Yeah. You know, so he does that sort of stuff. And it just the, the impact it's had on my family, like Thomas's little cousins um, who are just, they're nine and seven now, but they were obviously much younger when it happened. And even now, you know, you can put them in the car and my niece, she's very assertive, but she will call the lady who did it, the woman who did it, a big poo-poo head. Yeah. And, you know, will often refer to people driving, is that another poo-poo head? Or the woman that did this to TJ is a poo-poo head. And um, it's impacted them. And, and unfortunately for Jade, she's had to spend, I think, she's only had two normal birthday parties because we've had to celebrate her birthday in hospital and then we've had COVID and been in lockdowns. Yeah. I think she's seven, but she's only had two birthday parties. Mm. And it's people just have no idea the long-term impacts it no. has. Yeah, the, the impacts on his education. He can't work, right? So he's in year 12. Most of his peers have casual jobs, you know. Jobs. Yep. Yeah, it would be unreasonable for me to ask him to do that because mm. while going to school and then playing his footy, he's also got to go to psychologists yeah. and physiotherapists and have a tutor. So mm. it's just Rehab's unfair a full-time job. People don't understand it is. this. it is is. yeah and so yeah so I just give him some extra money so that he can and because I want him to live a life like a teenager and he's missed out on so much of that that you want him to be able to yeah will he be able to drive a car he's he got his license just before Christmas this year last year which was really good but he's still um there's still limitations on what he'll do so we went down the coast after Christmas and he drove, he's probably not ready to drive without us in the car. So my husband was in the front with him and he drove for a part of that. And then when he felt that, you know, this is enough, then my husband took over, but Mm -hmm. he would never like other kids that would normally have done that drive by themselves when they first got their license. It took him a few goes to do it with Chris being there, sitting by him and talking him through it and stuff like that. So he was very anxious about that. When he he had his L's for 18 months and that's, you know, we did a lot of driving around the suburb, probably more so than other children would do. I would suspect Mm -hmm. a lot of them would have been, you know, outside of the suburb a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. But um, we did a lot of that. How have you coped with him getting behind the wheel of a car? I didn't do any of the driving lessons. I did a few when we were just driving around the street and then my father and my husband took over um, because it was too much for me. Um, I can get in the car with him now. We just went driving today. Unfortunately, I am a little bit of a backseat driver um, (laughs) with him. So I I try not to get in the car with him too much because there's no need for me to be a backseat driver, but I'm just more anxious about it. It's all of the feelings culminating together of everything that you guys went through. I'm going to read you back something that you have written. 
Um, and I think this perfectly puts into the words just a summary of what you guys have been through. So you've previously said, the physical and psychological trauma hasn't stopped. My son was 13 at the time, and he has spent the last four years recovering from five surgeries in physio, hydrotherapy, and countless hours in the gym. He is still working to recover everything that was taken away from him. He was a promising footballer at the time, and it was taken away from him. Now, the research tells us that there are five main causes of um, injuries on our roads, and they're driver distraction, for example, mobile phones, driver fatigue, drivers being under the influence, drivers speeding, and not wearing seatbelts. A lot of our listeners of this podcast listen while they're driving. What message would you like to give to any person that gets behind the wheel of a car? This is the message. I work closely with um, Canberra Health Services to deliver um, education sessions to 16-year-old students um, about risk-taking behaviour. And one of the things that I always end the session with saying is um, if you want to drink to excess or if you want to use illicit substances, that's an issue for you and that's your right. Do whatever you want. But you have absolutely no right to get behind the wheel while you're under the influence. So the day that the crash occurred, you had so much taken from you as a family and TJ had so much taken from him. But can you put into words the gift that Australian blood donors gave in keeping him alive with the blood products that were used to keep him alive after the accident? Well, he wouldn't be alive. Yeah. And that's, I think, you know, there's, for me, there's um, a few things. Um, the helicopter, he wouldn't have survived the ambulance ride. So having access to the helicopter, having access to that fire team almost immediately to cut him out of the car mm -hmm. and that surgeon, a retrieval surgeon, and then the medical the trauma team that worked on him and the blood products and the, resusc you know, the ability to resuscitate him when he needed that, they all work together. Yeah. And also the one thing we can't forget, I think, is the seatbelt. Yeah. Uh, we took Thomas back. After he got out of hospital, he asked to go back to the scene mm -hmm. and we took him back and there was little bits of medical waste still there, which he recognised and he could label because yeah. he's pretty, uh, you know how kids that spend a lot of time yeah. in hospital can, you know, they can tell you what everything's called and they can read their monitors and I still can't read the monitors, but he can. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's that and he found some of that medical waste and he also found the buckle of his seatbelt from when it had been cut off so we still we have that wow um but yeah it's that sort of stuff and it's just funny there's um so many things that have contributed to his life and a lot of it is you know modernized technology and things like that um but but yet the simple gift of giving blood is something that is so simple and so quick and easy to do but without it, it can make, it is life, dif, you know, it's the difference between life and death. Yeah. yeah. Really and is. I think it's really important that people understand because they see on the news how much road trauma we have. Mm -hmm. You know, it's covered heavily in the news, but what's not covered in the news is all the other sorts of things that blood products are donated to, such mm -hmm. as cancers and 
other long-term illnesses, but mm. trauma only road trauma only makes up 3% of where donated blood products go to. Mm-hmm. And I know how much, you know, I've already donated for me, donating is so hard for me. My goal was just donate back what he took. Yeah. You know, just yeah. give back what Thomas took out of the system. And I've done that obviously. And I've gone way over that now. Um, but now it's just I've got to keep going because there's other people that are going to need it and I feel yeah. indebted for the rest of my life to keep mm-hmm. giving. And and like we've been through, it is such a, a traumatic um, strain psychologically and physically on my body to donate and, sometimes, and I can't do it as much as I want to. And then once I get in there, when they measure your, your heart rate and, and all of that stuff, and the, the team are pretty good with me now, but if I'm verging on not being okay to donate, they know just let me sit for a few minutes and yeah. let's do that test again because it's going to be a bigger shit show hmm. if you don't let it donate because yeah, I will absolutely. just have a meltdown. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. we will leave it there, Alana. As a blood donor and as a member of a family where blood has literally kept your family together. Um, We're so grateful to have you as part of the Milkshakes Family community. And I'm so grateful to you for telling your story so candidly today. Um, I think it's really going to change a lot of lives and get a lot more people in the chair donating. So give our love and best wishes to your beautiful TJ. And we can't wait to hear all the updates of how he kicks goals all the way into the future. So thank you so much. No worries at all. Thank you. Nothing feels more Australian, like the modern demonstration of mateship, than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift and it is my privilege to create a space for others to tell their stories and to give thanks. This podcast is written and presented by me, Kate Fisher. Today's guest was Alana, who shared her story of TJ, who required blood products after a road crash. Marley's dad, my lovely husband, Jeff Fisher, does the audio production for this podcast. To make an appointment to donate plasma and other blood products in Australia, please go to www.lifeblood.com.au and we would love it if you could join the Milkshakes for Marley Lifeblood team. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Milkshakes for Marley podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and share this episode with a friend. And as always, I will leave the final word to Molly. Thank you for my prize, Ma.